The Power of One is brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, available only on Amazon Prime Video. Never in military history has any campaign been so long anticipated, so much discussed, so thoroughly organized as the Second Front. This is the version of the Allied invasion of Normandy that we all know, an event marked around the world this year on D-Day's 75th anniversary. On June 6, 1944, 156,000 Allied troops landed on five beaches in Normandy. The campaign that would liberate France from Nazi control had begun. Now here's the other version. This one's not commemorated with anniversary events because it never actually happened. In this entirely fake campaign, a ghost army led by phantom generals with fake armies and tanks would invade the region around the French port of Calais. This imaginary invasion, carefully leaked to the Nazis, drew thousands of very real German troops to the Pas de Calais and away from Normandy. For three months after D-Day, those German troops continued to stand by, waiting for an even bigger invasion. It never came, of course. The fictional D-Day invasion ensured the success of the real one. And its fate rested not with U.S. or British generals, but mostly on the slight, ununiformed shoulders of a soft-spoken Spanish man with an overly rich imagination. That man was Juan Pujol Garcia, codename Garbo. You are listening to The Power of One, a podcast devoted to telling the extraordinary stories of ordinary people who in some way changed their world and ours. I'm your host, Sarmishta Subramanian. On our first episode, Garbo, the fabulist who saved D-Day. His story is almost too fantastical to be believed. He was a failed Catalan chicken farmer, a pacifist who set out on a personal quest to fight the Nazis and help the Allies. As a double agent, he ran a network of 27 Nazi informants scattered around the globe, every last one of them made up. He was secretly awarded a member of the British Empire medal just a few months after he was given Germany's elite Iron Cross bestowed on him by the Fuhrer himself. With his powers of deception and sheer chutzpah, he tricked the Nazis for years and helped ensure the Allies' victory in the war. Without Pujol and Harris and the Garbo deception, D-Day would have been a disaster. And without a success on D-Day and the Normandy campaign, then the war really you know, would have ended quite horribly. What do you do if you are an ordinary citizen living in Europe in the early 1940s who doesn't want to go along with fascism? Inspiring stories of resistance to the Nazis dot history books. But few are stranger or had a greater impact on the war's outcome than the story of Juan Pujol Garcia. Well, it's an extraordinary story because he had, he had endured the Spanish Civil War. He had actually at various stages, fought on both sides. That's Nigel West, a prolific author of books on espionage and security, including, most recently, Churchill's Spy Files. He also collaborated with Juan Pujol Garcia on his memoir, Operation Garbo, the personal story of the most successful spy of World War II. And he was so convinced that the Nazis would literally destroy the world that he felt it was his duty to do everything in his power to stop the Nazis and to stop Hitler. And the only way that he felt that he could help the Allies was by working as a, as a spy. And so in 1941, Pujol, 
who was then working as a hotel manager, did what almost no reasonable person in his situation would do. He strolled into the British embassy in Madrid and asked if he could spy for the Brits. Their answer, perhaps not surprisingly, was no. Pujol was undeterred. He tried again and was turned down again. Here's Jason Webster, author of the Garbo biography, The Spy with 29 Names, and of the newly published Violencia, A New History of Spain. He divides his time between England and Valencia. But when he keeps getting shown the door by the British, because they, they just don't know who this man is, and they just don't think he's you know, particularly suitable, he then, he then walks around the corner to the German embassy and says, I'd like to spy for you. Um, and spouts a whole load of sort of fascist and, and Nazi rhetoric and convinces them that he's a true believer. The Germans said yes. Their intelligence agency, the Abwehr, trained Pujol. They taught him code ciphering and secret writing, and Pujol was now one of them. But the mission he set for himself remained unchanged. He would help the Allies, and he would do it by passing false intelligence to the Nazis. He'd just be paid by the Germans for his trouble. The problem was... He was working for the British without the British knowing a thing about it. So he had no intelligence to pass on, real or fake. The solution to that problem, too, was obvious. Make it up. So it's 1941, and Juan Pujol Garcia is ensconced in Lisbon in a rented room. He's a small, balding man who sometimes sports round glasses, sometimes wears a beard. He's often unrecognizable from one photograph to the next. Very handy for a spy. Pujol's German handlers want him in London. But wartime England is not an easy place to get to. Obviously, before he's with MI5, and there is this really curious period in in the Garbo story um, when Pujol is acting as a freelance, effectively. He's in Lisbon, pretending he's in London, and can't speak a word of English, and is making up these intelligence reports. What he tends to do when he's in Lisbon, he goes to the library and he reads sort of, you know, Jane's guide to, you know, the ships of the world and, and, and reads newspaper reports and what have you. And so it starts making up stories, particularly about um, naval convoys sort of setting off from Liverpool and Bristol and where have you. Pujol turned out to be a prolific generator of invented intelligence. He wrote dozens of letters in code in invisible ink to his handler, Carl Eric Kulenthal. He wrote about a convoy of Allied ships heading to an inlet in the Irish Sea. He wrote about a fleet of ships heading for Malta. As Stefan Talti detailed in his book, Agent Garbo, Pujol's wife, Araceli, was in on the act, too. She delivered messages and even met with his handler on occasion, turning in splendid performances. But Pujol soon found he needed more collaborators, sources for his information, and insurance of a kind in case his lies were discovered. And so... He conjured fictional sub-agents scattered around the country. There was the wealthy Venezuelan living in Glasgow, whom the Germans came to know as Agent Pedro. He was trusted enough to write letters directly to the Germans, invisible ink and all. Pedro's brother was another sub-agent, a thrill-seeker who, at the request of the Nazis, undertook a dangerous recon mission to the Isle of Wight. He later worked as a commercial traveler in Toronto. Garbo's imaginary network of spies had another purpose. He's he's a chancer. He's he's trying to you know just sort of make ends meet. And, you know he's got a wife and uh, they've they've had their first child by now. So he's just trying to pay the rent and you know feed feed the mouths back at home. And so I think 
by having sub-agents, he can charge the Germans even more because, you know, his supposed sub-agents, they need paying and they need bribing and what have you. Juan Pujol Garcia had set himself up as a freelancer in a very unstable gig economy, all the more unstable because he continued to pitch himself to the British while he was working for the Germans. If he'd been discovered, he'd have been killed. At least he was improving his financial prospects this way. By the spring of 1942, the British intelligence agency, MI5, had noticed a strange pattern of communications in the Abwehr. They're reading the traffic that's you know, coming through because they cracked the codes of the German Secret Service. And so they're reading all these reports about supposedly a man, the Germans have a man spying for them in London itself. And you know, by this time, the, the British are pretty certain that they've caught every single German spy. And so when, when they read these reports through the decoded messages, they start to, you know, the alarm bells go off. But they, quick, they quickly realize, not the Germans, they quickly realize that he's, he's obviously a, a fantasist, that he's not in London because of all these mistakes he keeps making. Like, for example, you know, talking about ships that have already been sunk by the Germans setting off on convoys. Or his observations that men in Glasgow would do anything for a liter of wine. Glaswegians in that time tended to drink whiskey or beer. He made some terrible mistakes in this reporting. He said that London was so hot in the summer that all the diplomatic missions in London moved down to Brighton for the summer. Well, uh, London certainly wasn't as hot as that. Uh, And looking back on his claims for expenses, they were pretty wild. He never grasped the, the, the strange British currency of pounds, shillings and pence. He never got that. And at one stage, uh, in one of his claims for expenses of travel from London to Brighton, I think he put in a claim of £24. Well, it may cost £24 now. So these kinds of mistakes were sort of overlooked by the Germans because they wanted to believe in him. The Germans did not know enough to spot the mistakes, but the British certainly did. And MI5 was utterly baffled. Who was this German agent, codename Alaric, who was sending these voluminous missives to the Nazis about British war plans that bore no resemblance to reality, and who seemed to have enough influence that the Germans were deploying U-boats to meet his fictional convoys. And it's then that the connection gets made between MI5 and MI6. MI6 have known about Pujol for some time because he's this pesky Spaniard who keeps bothering them, saying he wants to spy for them. That's Jason Webster, and MI6 is the Foreign Security Service which handles intelligence overseas. MI5 is the domestic British service. But finally, the connection gets made between MI5 and MI6. And MI5 say, oh, we're really interested in this man. We want to bring him in. And that's when they get him out of Lisbon. They put him on a boat to Gibraltar, and then, they, and then he gets um, flown out to um, lands in Plymouth um, and gets taken to London and then gets taken over by, I say, he's sort of brought in to MI5, and it's MI5 who really put into good use. He's a willing double agent. Most, you know, it's very rare. Most double agents are either, you know, sort of con men or they're actual German agents who um, have been caught and been turned. So they're quite, you know, they're, they're often quite reluctant agents or, you know, slightly awkward people. But Garbo had been wanting to work for the British from the very beginning. So he's, he's ideal. He's absolutely perfect. Juan Pujol Garcia had achieved his dream. He was still Alaric, presiding over a network of sub-agents known collectively to the Germans as Arabelle. But now, he was also Garbo. 
an elite spy for the British Secret Service. His British codename was a nod to the marvelous actress Greta Garbo. MI5 found Pujol's performances no less persuasive or mesmerizing. And now the fun really begins. When we talk about Garbo, I think it, we have to be really clear about this, that it's, it's a double act. You know, Garbo, the double agent, is a double act between um, Juan Pujol from Barcelona, the, who is, you know, the double agent, but it's also his um, handler, his, his case officer, Tomas Harris, who's half Spanish, half English, and he's an art dealer and a really interesting guy, and he works for MI5. And between them, they really create Garbo and make him effective. Together, Pujol and Harris wrote the letters that Garbo would pass on to his German handler, Kulenthal. They grew Garbo's cadre of imaginary informants into a vast network. There's this uh, group, supposed group of Welsh Aryan nationalists, but they're not even all Welsh. I mean, one of them, um, one of the characters is the secretary of the movement, and she's she's actually English, English, and she's called Teresa Jardine, and she's in love with an Indian poet named Rags um, because um, you know Indians are also Aryans. They were characters with complex backstories and relationships. Here's Nigel West. There was an element of truth behind all of these rather unusual characters that they developed. And they all had money troubles. They all put in their expenses. They all had girlfriend or wife problems. There was one young lady who was sent to uh, Canby and Salon, Southeast Asia Command. That's Teresa Jardine again. She would write letters to Garbo on, on a weekly basis. Uh, of course, she didn't exist. Garbo himself had a mistress who supposedly was a secretary in the cabinet office. She didn't exist. But to the Germans, they were very real indeed, and they paid their salaries. Together, Pujol and Harris were writing fiction, rollicking fiction, first through letters and eventually through a wireless set for which Agent Alaric billed the Germans. And I think you get the sense that that Thomas Harris and Juan Pujol together in their office in central London were actually having a great time, coming up with all kinds of wheezes and jokes and um, stories. You know, you can almost hear him sort of laughing as he's writing it down because, you know, they're saying, you know, they're coming up with these crazy stories that they're feeding to the Germans. And he often says, you know, that... They're like tales from some cheap, you know, detective novel or cheap spy novel that, you know, they can't believe that the Germans are actually falling for them. The British knew that the Germans were falling for everything because they had cracked the codes used by the German Secret Service, the Abwehr. Um, And so they were reading what the Abwehr was saying to each other about everything, but particularly about the Garbo material itself. It was plain to anyone following the pathways of this disinformation and MI5 officials certainly were, the Garbo's position within the German camp was increasingly exalted. In Lisbon, Agent Alaric's letters to the Germans had been puffed-up confections. Pujol himself said, you know, he had to develop, early on, he had to develop a, a writing style which was very um, florid and, had to, and, and used as many words as possible to say, as, to actually pass on as little information <laughs> as possible. So... He, I mean, they they go on and on and on, and they're full of um, all kinds of um, you know Nazi and fascist rhetoric and and they're very baroque, very baroque language. But once Pujol was working with MI5, the false information was interspersed with real, valuable intelligence, though conveyed always in a way that made it useless. 
Messages were delivered late or would go to the wrong place, and always when they arrived would contain startlingly accurate, sometimes painfully detailed information. And in this way, over the next two years, Garbo made himself indispensable to the Nazis. The mishaps did not appear to ever arouse any suspicions on the part of the Germans. If anything, the Germans seemed to blame themselves. Garbo blamed them too. He once told his handlers rather loftily, I cannot accept excuses or negligence. Were it not for my ideals, I would abandon the work. He almost starts, at some stage, you know, he, he, he starts to scold Kulental and to say, oh, you don't, you know, it's almost like a sort of a, um, so sort of saying, you know, you don't love me enough. I mean, he doesn't quite use those words. He's saying, oh, you don't appreciate me. You know, here I am in London and it's surrounded by these, you know, these corrupt bourgeois um, capitalists and whatever, you know, it's like, and yeah, no, and, 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 that, and it works and all, it, all, it always works. You know, it's, um, he sort of plays the guilt card on Kulintal and Kulintal always falls for it. If his handler, the man with whom he had the most contact, ever suspected anything, he didn't act on it. I mean, we have to remember that Kulintal is, part Jewish himself. And that's a bit of a problem for him. Maybe he couldn't um, entertain the possibility that he was being duped. He had to sell everything that was, any information that was coming through to him, he had to sort of sell as being absolutely top-notch stuff. The deeper Garbo got, and the more beloved he became, the more difficult it would have been for anyone to raise questions about him. And in the spring of 1944, the most trusted German agent in London would have the ultimate chance to prove his worth. Hey, I'm Kyle Fulton. I'm the producer of Power of One, and I wanted to tell you a bit about the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. He's not your typical hero, but the political fate of the nation rests in his hands. John Krasinski returns as the titular CIA officer in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. The latest season takes the former analyst to South America to solve a global conspiracy that spans the UK, Russia, Venezuela, and back home in the U.S. Follow along the action-packed mission in the new season, now available on Prime Video. Garbo, meanwhile, was preparing for the role of his lifetime in an Allied operation called Fortitude. It was part of Operation Bodyguard, a deception campaign to exaggerate Allied military strength and mislead Germans about the D-Day plans. Here's Nigel West. Well, the... Arrangements were probably the most sophisticated, coordinated deception of all time. So the basis of the deception was the creation of completely false military units, uh, brigades, divisions, regiments, individual military units. And in order to create those bogus non-existent units, components of one particular major unit was an entire army called the First United States Army Group. The basis of it was wireless traffic. So the Allies invented technology that emulated the broadcasts that you would expect the radio transmissions of any large military group. So where you have large concentrations of men, you've got equipment, you've got radio traffic, you've got officers' conferences, you've got planning meetings, you've got the distribution of ammunition. So the first layer of the deception was this false radio traffic. Then put on top of that were the physical attributes of that manifestation of troops. So, for example, tank tracks in fields so as to demonstrate to the Luftwaffe that would fly aerial reconnaissance missions over those areas where the transmissions were coming from. They would take 
capture imagery. They would take photographs of the fields, and they would see these the unmistakable tracks of tanks. But in fact, they were, of course, farm machinery that had been converted to emulate tanks, landing craft made of balsa wood and cardboard and timber that were moored in river estuaries that looked like landing craft preparing for a major invasion. And then when you add on to those two or three layers of deception, you had the organization that Garbo controlled. So the organization was codenamed Arabelle by the Germans. And so when they had some imagery that they were interested in, they would contact uh, Alaric by wireless, requesting a personal observation. And Garbo would then send an agent to a particular airfield or a particular railway station. And then these sub-agents would report to Garbo on the insignia, the, the unit badges that were seen in those areas. And all of this was carefully coordinated, all written up before the existence of computers onto card index files so that there was no internal contradiction in the material that was being conveyed to the enemy. Wes likens it to a jigsaw puzzle. German analysts were finding these puzzle pieces and putting them together, entirely unaware that the picture they were assembling had been carefully constructed for them by the devilishly ingenious minds at MI5. The Garbo D-Day operation was inspired by a masterful deception campaign in the Middle East, pulled off with the help of a British double agent, an Italian national named Renato Levy. Levy was loved by the Germans, as Garbo was, and he was sent by them to Cairo. Here's Nigel West. His British codename was Cheese, and the MI5 handler, who was responsible as the case officer for Renato Levy, was a delightful, unusual figure. He was a theatrical impresario. He wrote reviews for The Spectator. He was a very unusual character, and he never believed that the cheese case would amount to anything. And so he had a highly developed sense of humor. He told the Germans that Renato Levy had recruited a deputy who was going to be his wireless operator, whose name was Paul Nickersoff. And the Germans said, excuse me, what did you say his name was? And Evan Simpson said, Paul Nickersoff. He is a Syrian of Russian extraction. <laughs> no, he didn't exist. But uh, the Germans believed that Paul Nikasov really was in contact with them, as indeed he was throughout the war. And that established the principle of strategic deception. And what happened in the Middle East really established the concept of strategic deception, which the Germans never really appreciated because they I think they just didn't have the imagination or the sense of humor for that matter. The Brits, on the other hand, did. West says that when the D-Day operation was being planned in 1943, some of the officers were brought over from the Middle East. They joined a new secret committee made up of intelligence and military officers that would oversee dozens of German agents and the release of intelligence to the Germans. It was called the Twenty Committee. Even the name was clever. Twenty in Roman numerals is two X's. Double cross. The double cross committee was started in January 1941 and continued right up until the last week 
of the war and, and met on a, on a weekly basis. It was chaired by a very junior officer. John Masterman was a don at Oxford and military rank didn't count. What counted was intellectual power. And Masterman had a Rolls-Royce brain and he was able to exercise authority over brigadier generals. Support for Double Cross came right from the top. Churchill was a great believer in the strategic value of disinformation. He knew of Garbo's prodigious talents and of the plan to use the full network of double agents to support Garbo's deceptions. Still, at one point, the whole operation was almost blown by Pujol's wife, Araceli, who had joined him in London soon after with their baby and was desperately unhappy and homesick. She'd worked with Pujol early on in his spy career, but now he was always off at work, and she was a young mother of two stuck at home in a country where she didn't speak the language. Their relationship was stormy at the best of times, but now it was buckling under the strain. At one particular point, she threatened to blow the whistle on Garbo by going to the Spanish embassy and telling the the Spanish ambassador everything about her husband's deception. The police surrounded Belgrave Square, where the Spanish embassy is, uh, to try and prevent her from showing up. But in the end... She just uh, changed her mind. She didn't go anywhere near the embassy. Still, just to be sure, Pujol and Tomas Harris staged a dramatic intervention to scare her. Araceli was told by an MI5 official that Pujol had been arrested because of her threats to blow his cover and that he might be executed. They took her to see her husband in an interrogation camp, unshaven and bedraggled and decked out in prisoner garb. She was so terrorized she never did it again. Their only concession was to send Harris's wife, Hilda, who was de facto part of the Garbo campaign, to console her. It wouldn't have been easy to be married to the world's most heroic liar. On June 6th, the Allied troops landed. They were backed up by almost 2,400 Allied aircraft and almost 7,000 ships. But the deception had to continue. The German troops still needed to be kept away from Normandy, to be convinced that the invasion that had just happened there was nothing but a decoy, a feint. They needed to believe the real, bigger invasion was still to come in the Pas de Calais, which was the shortest distance from Britain across the English Channel, and so the most sensible spot for the Allies to enter France. Just how good was Garbo? Three days later, there was a moment of truth. Here's Jason Webster. We know that this message, this, this, this idea, this sort of double trick that they play on the Germans actually gets all the way up to Hitler. And Hitler is about to send all his crack troops down to Normandy um, just sort of two or three days after the Allied invasions. And that would have been a complete disaster for the Allies. It probably almost certainly would have been pushed back into the sea. But it's, it's this disinformation that comes from Garbo specifically and it reaches Hitler, and Hitler reads this information from Garbo and says, "Right, no, stop it. We have to keep all our, it's, we have to keep all our troops, or our, we are crack troops in the Pas de Calais." And it's that crucial decision that Hitler makes based on Garbo's disinformation that's being fed through the Abwehr, through the German Secret Service, that allows D-Day eventually and the Normandy campaign to be a success. Without it, it almost certainly would have ended in disaster for the Allies. It took the bravery of thousands of soldiers and the cunning of many strategists to make D-Day a success. 
and the scaffold of lies created by Double Cross marshaled the abilities of an impressive group. As Ben McIntyre wrote in his book Double Cross, there was an Oxford historian, an industrialist, several lawyers, a future director of the Times of London, and a German-born playwright, the only woman in the group. But the pivotal role of the man who attended Spain's most elite chicken farming academy cannot be underestimated. Here's West again. A military command post in Italy was captured by the Allies as they moved into, uh, onto Italian territory, onto the mainland. And one of the items that they captured was uh, the latest German Abwehr military intelligence assessment of Allied strengths in the United Kingdom. And to their amazement, as this map was examined, it provided what purported to be a complete order of battle of the Allied forces in the UK. And 30% of the troops and their deployment across the UK, as marked on this map, were fake units, fake units that had been invented by Garbo. So that was clear proof that the Germans came to believe in the whole fortitude deception. Because when these troops were held back on D-Day and were not deployed onto the beaches of Normandy, that was a clear signal when the Germans analyzed the prisoners that they were taking during the Battle of Normandy, that none of the units that had been mentioned by Garbo had been captured. That meant that there was going to be a second attack somewhere else, namely the Pas de Calais. The Nazis never learned the truth. Later, after the war, Pujol moved with his wife to Venezuela, but his marriage had suffered terribly during those wartime years, and Araceli left with the children and returned to Madrid. She was told by British officials in 1949 that Pujol had died of malaria while on an intelligence mission in Africa. It was the anonymous, tragic end of a man who had served the world so bravely. Or was it? Here's Nigel West. Well, I became interested in his case. It was mentioned for the first time in 1972 in some declassified documents. And I just became convinced that as an arch fabricator, the greatest deceiver of all time, certainly of the Second World War, that anything that was written about him was probably untrue. And so I spent the next 12 years on and off trying to find him. The real-life identity of Garbo was a closely guarded secret. The senior-level MI5 officers West interviewed for his books had no idea what his real name was. And it wasn't until 1981 that I was able to interview Anthony Blunt, who had been a Soviet spy. And he was the one person in MI5 who really used to go into other people's desks and find out what they were doing. And he he told me that uh, his friend, who was dead in MI5, had actually handled the case, a man called Tommy Harris, but he'd been killed in a car crash in 1964. But he said he remembered uh, meeting Garbo. And I asked him if he remembered Garbo's name. And he said, yes, he thought it was Juan or Jose Garcia. In 1983, West tested out that bit of information on a source who inadvertently revealed Pujol's name. Nigel West then hired a researcher to call every J. Pujol Garcia in the Barcelona phone book, more than 300 names. Not one fit the profile, a man in his 70s who spoke good English and had been in London. 
But when West pushed the researcher for any interesting responses, there was one. A young man who demanded to know who was asking and why. That man turned out to be Garbo's nephew, and he'd heard from his uncle five years earlier, via postcard from Venezuela. And that's when I had a researcher in Venezuela who came back to me very quickly and said there is a Catalan club in Caracas and the secretary of the Catalan club is a very difficult fellow called Juan Pujol and he may be the person that you're after. But discovering Pujol's location was one thing. Making contact with him was quite another. To catch the spy would require a bit of gentle deception and few would know that better than Nigel West who has spent an inordinate amount of time studying spies and writing about them, and whose name, by the way, is a pseudonym for the former Tory MP, Rupert Allison. A literary code name, if you will. Of course, my problem was just ringing him up wasn't going to work, because if he wanted to be found, he'd had 40 years to, um, to make himself known. So it was clear that he wasn't going to cooperate. So I had to indulge in a little subterfuge, which I thought I was entitled to. It was just approaching the 40th anniversary of the D-Day landings in 1984. So I rang up Buckingham Palace. And the Duke of Edinburgh is probably not very well known, but he was, is a great spy buff. He said, everybody knows that Garbo is dead. And I said, well, actually, he's not only alive, but he's coming to London. And he's going to attend the 40th anniversary celebrations. And I suggested that because he had been given a medal, the Order of the British Empire, in 1944, in conditions of great secrecy, that there might be some kind of role or ceremony for him on the anniversary itself. Duke of Edinburgh said, well, if he really is alive and he's coming to London, then, of course, the palace would be delighted to see him. So my first call to Juan Pujol in Caracas and forgive me for another slight subterfuge, was to say that I was calling from Buckingham Palace, inviting him to London. And not many people turned down that call. Their first meeting was in New Orleans, where Pujol's son was at medical school. Their second meeting was in London, and it was even more dramatic. I should declare, incidentally, that during my 12-year search for Juan Pujol, I had made a wrong identification on the way. But I was convinced that I'd got the right person this time. And I invited several people who had been involved in the case to come to a club in London and meet Juan Pujol. And I wasn't aware of it at the time, but three of them had said, oh, he's got the wrong man again. But we'll, we'll go and take a free drink off him anyway and have a good laugh. And as I walked Juan into the room, Colonel Tommy Robertson, who was the head of the double-cross system in England, took one look at him and burst into tears. And it's quite remarkable to see an elderly gentleman in his mid-80s be so overwhelmed by emotion that he is in tears. And he embraced Juan. And uh, I was pretty certain I'd got the right person. It was the beginning of a new chapter in Pujol's remarkable story. A writer had found the mythical agent Garbo. The Mail on Sunday ran a story which was picked up by the news agency United Press International and the New York Times. When Pujol and West went to France, he was recognized on the street and followed by a film camera everywhere he went. 
Pujol's visit to Normandy, the site of the real invasion that his lies had served, was a profoundly moving experience. He asked to be left alone to go into one of the American cemeteries. And he came down out of the cemetery after about 20 minutes with tears rolling down his cheek. And he said, I'd been told that I'd saved tens of thousands of young lives because of what had happened with the deception campaign. But he said, I obviously didn't do enough. Look at the graves of all these young men. Juan Pujol Garcia, by then living a quiet retiree's life in South America, had suddenly, if only briefly, become the most famous spy in the world. But celebrity came with its complications. When Garbo emerged in 1984, life became quite difficult because, of course, he had two wives. One thought that he'd been dead for the last 25 years, and uh, the other had no idea that she was the second Mrs. Garbo. And so he had five children who were unaware of each other. So it became quite a complicated story in the end. Pujol remained committed to his own creative version of the truth right to the end. 75 years ago, the truth in Churchill's famous words was so important it needed the protection of a bodyguard of lies. Deceptions have been companions of war ever since. And these days, they are of peacetime, too. The rhythms of fake news are all too familiar to us. Its tendency to overwhelm with information that's useless, irrelevant, inaccurate, and sometimes accurate. Fake news now, as in Garbo's time, is testament to the great value of bluster and to the power of story. Garbo and Harris's disinformation, of course, was all in the valuable service of saving the world. But that didn't mean it couldn't also be a tremendous amount of fun. And for me, what makes the character of Garbo, and you know, played by these two men sort of simultaneously, is what makes him so fascinating is that he has a very playful attitude towards the world, towards reality, to what we think of as the real world, just sort of the ordinary concrete world that you know, we touch and feel and see every day of our lives. They have a much more picaresque attitude to life. And, you know, the picaresque is a strong element in Spanish culture, Spanish literature. And it's this sort of, say, it's this sort of slightly roguish, playful attitude where the world is some, it's like your plaything. It's like putty. You can change it. You can play with it. You can shape it into your own form. And they do that by telling stories. And I love stories. I'm a storyteller myself. And so by telling stories, these two men effectively changed history, and they changed it for the better. You know, D-Day would have been a disaster without their efforts. You've been listening to The Power of One. Be sure to tune in next week when we bring you the story of the man who stood up to Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin is a guy who values money more than human life. And so for a person who values money so highly, and now we've come up with a tool that puts his money at risk, That's devastating. That hits him right in the Achilles heel. The Power of One is brought to you by McLean's in partnership with the Frequency Podcast Network. It's written and co-produced by me, Sarmishta Subramanian. Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our researcher is Patricia Treble. Special thanks to Charlie Gillis, Jordan Heath-Rawlings, Annalisa Nielsen, Milena Boscovic, Stephanie Phillips, Ryan Clark, and Matthew Morrow. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. See you next week.
Download a new weekly episode of The Power of One, brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, only on Prime Video.